Welcome to Labor Law Radio. I'm your host, Michael Tracy, attorney at law, and we're here on the web at www.laborlawradio.com, where you can call me toll-free, 888-678-7229. This week, we've got a great show for you because two recent uh, California appellate court decisions came down that are very interesting. We're going to sort of interrupt what we had normally scheduled to uh, talk about this week and get into these two cases. Uh, what we are going to talk about briefly first is a wage and hour issue of California meal breaks. This case was uh, decided by the California Supreme Court a couple months ago. It's not really uh, new news, but I want to cover it because I do receive a lot of questions about it as people become aware of what this law is. That is, most employees in California are entitled to mandatory meal breaks of at least 30 minutes, and we're going to get into what those requirements are, what the issues of law are, and what uh, this radical new uh, decision by the California Supreme Court uh, means for employees in California. And then we're going to get into these two cases that just came out in California on interesting subjects. The first one is a retaliation lawsuit. It's almost a heartbreaker from a plaintiff's attorney viewpoint to read this lawsuit because unfortunately uh, or maybe it's, it's you know it was a fair decision the employee lost but we'll go through why that was what made it a good case or what looked to be an extremely good case at the outset and then by the time it worked its way through the entire process turns out to be a disaster of a case and this is things that uh, attorneys hate they look like a good case they invest a lot of time and money and effort in the case and then ultimately the uh, plaintiff was a little bit disingenuous in their claims, maybe not entirely forthcoming with their attorney, and it just turns into a disaster of a case. And the, the, it looks like the attorney tried to salvage it at the end and go through this appeal process, ultimately unsuccessful. But it will allow us to see what would make for a great retaliation case if it all held up and what defense attorneys do to completely destroy your great retaliation case and get you absolutely nothing out of it. So very interesting. Uh, we will get to that one a a little bit later in the show. Another recent case that came out, and I've been meaning to cover this subject uh, for a number of weeks because I do get uh, a lot of questions about it, and that is non-compete agreements. Generally, in California, non-compete agreements are illegal, There's a, but there are a variety of exceptions to that rule. It does get a little bit uh, complicated, and frequently employees misunderstand what their obligations are under non-solicitation and non-compete agreements. That is, where you sign an agreement with an employer that you will not go to work for one of the competitors or something like that. Usually comes up in the uh, consulting industry. In this case, the case we're going to be looking at is a high-tech consulting business. The person was a uh, server installer and then went to work for one of the clients of the uh, consulting company. And we'll see what the court decided there, why it was... uh, a slight change from the existing law and why we why I think it was ultimately good law that the court decided because it does clarify a number of issues that have been out there in this uh, in this area of law so uh, we'll get to those a little bit later I do need to follow up from where I had left off last week because I was cut short on my veterans benefits uh, discussion uh, so for you radio listeners uh, you'll just have to bear with me as we uh, uh, work through some of those uh, final issues I just want to touch on because there has been some confusion from non-veterans in terms of what exactly I was talking about for the last 30 minutes of, of the show. For the podcast listeners, uh, you can simply skip ahead if you're not interested in veterans benefit. But this is 
also of general interest to the American public. I mean, your taxpayer dollars are paying for these benefits and ultimately paying for uh, the cost of litigating these benefits in terms of what the uh, Veterans Administration denies and ultimately has to be dragged through a, a lengthy legal process. If you're a veteran, you know about these claims. They take years to to prosecute. I think the average uh, claim at the uh, Veterans Administration is roughly about a year and a half to two years. And then in the appeals process, historically, it's been about a year. Now, uh, in one of the cases I just have, it's been a year and it's just been assigned to a judge. So we're probably looking at about a year and six months to get a decision out of it. So it does look like the uh, Veterans Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims is increasing its work caseload and, and backlogging more cases, which is unfortunate given the uh, the current deployment situation. But just to recap that, what these veterans benefits are, they're not for people who were immediately disabled in the line of duty and are covered by, you know, their service, uh, you know, their in-service doctors and stuff like that. This is for veterans who sustained some type of injury in service, but it didn't manifest itself as a significant disability until years later. And making that connection between what is a current disability and what happened to you while you were in service, that's where all of these controversies and issues arise. And I just wanted to touch on that briefly. I did put a link up on the uh, on the website to the pro bono site. Like I said, I can only personally handle one or two cases of these a year. They are very uh, voluminous. Uh, you know, they deal with you know pounds and pounds and pounds of, I think one of uh, the cases had 27 pounds of, of medical records that they had to ship to us. So they do get very, uh, very complicated. And we can't take that many, uh, especially because we do do them on a pro bono basis. But you do need to be aware that uh, there's a substantial number of, of veterans out there. And for those of you going through this process, like we said, the most important thing is to be able to establish that service connectivity of your current disability. And you can read through uh, some of the material there on the pro bono website in terms of, of what establishes that. But the most important thing is to determine quickly whether you need to get your own medical opinion to establish, one, that you have a current disability. Sometimes it's not exactly clear that you have a disability. In terms of uh, Gulf War syndrome, there's a growing number of cases coming down in favor of the veteran. But for the past six or seven years, the veteran was routinely ruled against in this area because they said there was no current disability. It's not a, a compensable injury. So even if you can show that you were somehow would receive some type of uh, experimental treatment while you were in the uh, in the Gulf War, or some type of a nerve gas a antidote or something like that, there's no current uh, injury to, to tie it to. So in those cases, you need to get your own medical doctor who is going to certify that you do have a current disability. And those are the two things you need to have that medical doctor establish, that you do have a current disability and that it is somehow linked to an incident, event, or accident that happened while you were in the service. And that's essentially the whole crux of a veteran's claims. I don't want to get into it too much more because uh, I always run out of time on these shows and I want to move on to to the other things. But uh, I did, uh, did get cut short a little bit last week, so hopefully that, that wraps it up. And one other side note in following up from last week on the uh, truck driver exemption, I have posted some additional information on my website about a new development in the law where a couple cases have come out in terms of federal overtime jurisdiction and trucks that are less than 10,000 pounds. Previously, 
uh, some courts had held that any type of truck could be exempt or any type of vehicle could be exempt from federal overtime requirements. So there was pickup trucks and just people driving their personal cars across state lines were uh, held to be exempt from from overtime under this motor carrier exemption. Uh, Congress passed a new law. It looks like courts are interpreting that to restrict that exemption only to trucks of uh, 10,000, more than 10,000 pounds. So I have posted some information on about that up on the website. So moving on to current topic, current hot topic in California labor law is the issue of meal breaks. Now, it's been in the news a lot recently, so maybe you've all heard of it, but Prior to the decision of Murphy versus Kenneth Cole, a lot of California employees did not know that they were entitled to mandatory meal periods. Now, there is an open issue of whether exempt employees, that is professionals, executives, people like doctors, lawyers, uh, accountants, things like that, are entitled to meal breaks. That's still an open area of law. We do have some cases litigating that currently, and hopefully we will have a resolution of that for the time being. But for the purpose of this discussion, I'm going to actually take the uh, defense attorney's view that exempt employees are not entitled to uh, to mandatory meal periods, and we'll really just cover it for non-exempt employees. So you can still be paid on a salary and be non-exempt. You know, we've talked about a lot of that in terms of overtime, but especially for hourly employees or commission-based employees or uh, piece rate employees, you are entitled to a mandatory lunch break or dinner break. And the most common misconception about this is, one, people don't know about it. That's the most common misconception. The second most common misconception is that it is a one-hour break. That's false. It is not a one-hour lunch break. Uh, It is a 30-minute unpaid meal break that that you are entitled to. Specifically, uh, the law is that uh, for every work period, more than five hours, you're entitled to 30 minutes of unpaid meal break except where you are only working a six-hour shift so if you're working a six-hour shift it doesn't make any sense to have you work five hours take a half hour off and then come back for another 30 minutes to finish up your shift that just wouldn't uh, that wouldn't make any sense so they say if you are just working the six-hour shift then you're entitled to you're not entitled to a meal break but anything beyond that you are entitled to a 30-minute break if you work past 10 hours, then you're going to be entitled to two meal periods. Uh, that is one after five hours, and then you're going to come back to uh, to work for another five hours, and you're going to be entitled to another 30-minute break somewhere in the middle of that uh, in the middle of that uh, other period. So that's basically what the law is. Uh, what the interesting thing in in that's changed in the law or been clarified in the law is that the Supreme Court has said that these mandatory meal periods, when they are violated, when that is when you don't get your lunch or you don't get your dinner break, you're entitled to one additional hour of pay, and that is going to be considered wages under the law. And this is a critical uh, determination because if it is a wage, then a whole variety of things happen. One, the statute of limitations can go back four years, uh, three years for wages, four years for under an unfair competition claim. And it can also be used in computing your regular rate of pay, which means your, your overtime compensation may increase. And I want to play just for a minute here the argument that was used at the California Supreme Court. They uh, published it on their uh, website, so we have a, a piece of the oral arguments. And this is the opening statement from Donna Rue, the uh, plaintiff's attorney in that case. And it describes what these meal premiums, these penalties 
not penalties, the, these meal premiums for missed meals are designed to compensate. So here's the clip. The primary purpose of Labor Code Section 226.7 is to provide compensation where no compensation previously existed. 226 payments are the only compensation that employees receive for tangible harms, extra fatigue, stress, not having the opportunity to call a school or a doctor or, or child care. These are real harms that employees incur when they have to work through breaks that are their statutory right to take. Because this is compensation, it is governed by the three-year statute of limitations. To be clear, employers already have a legal obligation to pay employees for the time that they spend working. An employee who works for eight hours is already entitled to be paid for eight hours. So from that, we can see that there's a whole variety of problems that come up when you're denied your proper meal period. And this is just sort of the legislator's way of compensating you for that. And your compensation for this is one hour of pay at your regular rate of compensation. So if you're normally making $15 an hour, you miss a lunch break, you get uh, an additional $15 for that day. Now, if you miss multiple meal periods in the same day, uh, apparently the law is that you only get one hour's pay for each day in which these things are violated. There's an open issue of the law if you miss your rest break in addition to your meal break, whether you get two hours pay or just one hour's pay, that's not really an issue. Rest break cases are usually losing cases. They're very difficult uh, to prove because of this different standard that's used between meals and, and rest breaks. In particular, the uh, meal periods are mandatory. They have to give you this meal break. There's a bunch of defense attorneys out there saying they're optional and they can be waived. You know, if, if one of those cases, if they prevail in one of these cases, I'll definitely be ranting and raving about it on this show and on my website. But until they do, uh, it seems pretty clear to me that the law requires that these meal periods be provided uh, in, or paid for. Those are the two choices. They can either give you the meal period or pay you the additional one hour's pay. With rest periods, now rest periods are 10 minutes of paid rest time. That is, because you're only given 10 minutes, it's not considered a bona fide break in, under the Fair Labor Standards Act. You have to have a, at least a 20-minute break in order for the employer to charge you for it. That is to deduct 20 minutes of time from you. So if they only give you 10 minutes, if they only give you 15 minutes, they're not allowed to deduct that from your hours worked. So in terms of the rest period, they're 10 minutes of paid work, and you get 10 minutes for every four hours of work. So generally, in an eight-hour work period, you're entitled to one 30-minute unpaid meal break and two paid 10-minute rest breaks that occur in the middle of your shift, at the two, basically at the two-hour mark or thereabout. The issue with the rest periods and what distinguishes them from the meal period is that the, the language says that every employee for rest periods is every employer shall authorize and permit all employees to take rest periods. And defense attorneys have picked up on that to mean that authorize and permit simply means they have to allow you to take it. It's not required. If you happen to want to work through your 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 rest break you can and they can essentially be waived at will and so it's very difficult to prevail on those claims because courts seem to buy into that argument it does you know lend itself to a clear reading of what the regulatory language is meal periods on the other hand appear to be required the language there is no employer shall employ any person for a work period of more than five hours without a meal period so from that, it seems pretty uh, clear that meal periods are required, rest periods aren't, 
So the issue of whether you get both in one day, usually we don't litigate it because rest periods, they're usually more trouble than they're worth. They're not winning cases. Meal periods are great cases. We love meal period cases. So the issue in, in Murphy versus Kenneth Cole was that the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement, your friendly neighborhood California Labor Board, said they were penalties, that you could only go back one year to recover your missed wages for these um, meal periods that you missed. Unfortunately, that essentially made the statute worthless because by the time an employee filed a claim or talked to an attorney or went through the process to get these uh, these meal periods, it generally a couple weeks or maybe even two or three months had elapsed since they left their employment at that company. So generally, you you are allowed to sue your employer while you're still employed there. Very, very few people do. Most people prefer to wait until they leave uh, before they pursue their claim because they feel they're going to be retaliated against. Now, I don't see a lot of retaliation out there, especially in big companies. I mean, if you're working for a big company, very slim chance that they're going to retaliate against you. And we'll get into why that is when we talk about our retaliation case. But it's, it's extremely bad for the uh, for the company and you don't see it in smaller mom and pop companies. You do see it. It's, it's a simple fact of the way human beings react to being you know threatened with a lawsuit. They get very hostile. It's not going to be a fun work environment. Whether that's going to build a retaliation claim or not will remain to be seen when we discuss the retaliation issue. But it's not a good thing for the employee and generally they choose to, to leave. So once you leave, your claim is basically elapsing under this one year statute of limitation that the California Labor Board was promoting. And that's just, you know, from an attorney's perspective, you know, going back for one year for meal penalties, it's not, you know, a significant enough claim to really make it worth your while. So with the one year limitation, employers were basically, you know, flouting the law and not, uh, you know, just ignoring it because it's one year, uh, you know, if the employees stay there, if you'd work there four or five, six years, uh, you know, paying one year worth of meal penalties isn't going to be that uh, that big of a deal. Fortunately, the California Supreme Court uh, gave the uh, labor board another rebuke, which they do on a regular basis. I mean, courts are constantly telling the labor board that they're doing something wrong. People think that the labor board is employee friendly. It is not. This is a classic example of it being extremely pro employer. They sided with this nebulous interpretation that it was a one year period, which n- never even stood up to, to any scrutiny. A couple courts had sided with it, but it was just such at variance with what the law had actually read. It's difficult to fathom why the labor board chose that position, especially because prior to the current uh, administration in Sacramento taking place, the labor board had sided with the employees. They had said it was a three-year statute of limitation, uh, that it was a wage, and that you could go back the full three years. And it wasn't until recently, when there was a change in administration, that they decided to side with the uh, with the employer for a one-hour claim. So how they flip-flopped on that and justified their uh, their reasoning on it uh, was always beyond me. But in any case, the California Supreme Court has has clearly decided that now. I do want to say for the listeners who have caught in that I'm switching back between three and four years, that is intentional. When you bring a case to 
the labor board, you can only go back three years regardless of whether it's a wage or penalty. The best you can hope to do is go back three years because the California Labor Board can only enforce California labor law, which has a three-year statute of limitations. When you go into court and sue, you can go back an additional year for a fourth year under this thing called unfair competition law. It's really just one of these, you know, formal pleading requirements that, you know, attorneys know about. And that's why some people don't like attorneys. If you know about this law, you simply write it into your complaint for uh, restitution. And all of a sudden, voila, you said the magic words and you get an extra one year of compensation for this uh you know, for the exact same thing that you did at the labor board. So I have a whole site about a whole page on my website about why going to the labor board is not the best idea, especially if you've been there four years. But there's a whole bunch of other reasons. And that is another one. So in any case, meal breaks, if you didn't know about them before, you are entitled to a 30 minute meal break for every uh, five hours of work. And, you know, there are some ex- exceptions. You can't waive it in the healthcare profession uh, if you don't take your first meal, if you work a 12 hour shift such as a lot of nurses do this, you are allowed to waive one of yours under a a mutual agreement. If the conditions of employment are such that it's impossible to allow you to take a break. So if you are the sole operator of a nuclear power plant and if you leave, the thing is going to melt down. Well, clearly they aren't allowed to uh, have you take a a meal break. That's obviously an extreme example. That one wouldn't happen. Uh, But sometimes you get them with with various types of security positions or you know things where you're alone in the field and it wouldn't make any sense to have you take a meal break because there's there's nothing for you to do and you're required to be attending to some type of duties you are allowed in those specific cases where it would be impossible to relieve you of duty for 30 minutes you are allowed to have an on-duty meal period if the employee agrees to it it needs to be in writing and the writing specifically needs to say that the employee can eliminate this agreement at any time simply by giving notice of it. So there are some uh, there are some restrictions on it. I do have a, a bunch of that information up on my website, but hopefully that covers uh, meal breaks and more than you wanted to know about uh, California meal breaks. And so what I want to move on to now is the retaliation issue. Now, retaliation is a claim that attorneys love. And the reason why we love it is that you can be retaliated for complaining about something, even if that something wasn't true. So believe it or not, if I'm a, I'll use an extreme example, maybe this is stretching a little bit far. If I'm a white guy and I go in and claim I'm being uh, racially discriminated against in an all white company, that by itself, it just it has no merit. It's it's a ridiculous claim. Everybody else in the company is white. I'm white, and yet I'm claiming I'm being discriminated against. There's just no basis to that claim whatsoever. So if I if I actually brought a harassment, discrimination, wrongful termination based on this, that would be thrown out in no time. However, if I simply make the allegation, and then they retaliate against me in any way, even if that allegation does not turn out to be true. I'm still protected from retaliation, and if they do demote me, fire me, transfer me, you know, do some type of adverse uh, employment action against me, I'm entitled to damages for retaliation. It has happened a number of times in sexual harassment where the employee complains about sexual harassment. It turns out that the conduct didn't actually amount to sexual harassment, but the retaliation towards the employee that occurred after the complaint was, was actionable. 
happens in overtime cases as well. Maybe your you know, questionable employee, and there's a number of job classifications that maybe you're exempt, maybe you're not exempt. Let's say you're a, a senior, we'll just say you're an accountant. A lot of accountants are exempt under the administrative exemption, and a lot are not because they simply do routine clerical duties, and maybe you're in a gray area there. So you complain that you should be paid overtime. The company says, that's ridiculous. All accountants are, are exempt employees, and we're firing you for, for raising that ludicrous issue. You may ultimately lose on your overtime claim. Maybe the court determines that you did have discretion and independent judgment, that you were making you know, decisions on matters of significance that relate to the management policies or general business operations of the company. And a lot of accountants do make those types of decisions. So maybe you get ruled against on the overtime claim. But the retaliation in that case is so blatant and so clear cut that it makes an attorney like me drool because that's the cases that we love. Um, blatant retaliation are, is, is a very solid case. So that's the good thing about retaliation is it can take a bad case and turn it into a good case. As long as you complain about whatever conduct is that uh, you're grieving about and the company does some action against you, that makes a great retaliation claim. So what you have to prove for the legal definition of a retaliation claim are these three things. You have to be engaged in protected activity. That is raising some type of concern, uh, complaining about sexual harassment, complaining about racial discrimination, uh, complaining about unpaid overtime, labor violations, safety violations, you know, other uh, violations of the law. And then there has to be some adverse employment action taken against you. Now, adverse employment actions can be can mean a whole slew of things. What it doesn't mean is that your complaint was ignored, that the boss looked at you funny, that you felt you were treated a little bit differently. It has to be something substantial that materially alters your conditions of employment. The best one, the one that makes plaintiff's attorneys drool, is being fired. There's no questions asked about that. Being terminated is an adverse employment action. If they transfer you to another location, maybe that is. If they transfer you to Alaska, probably an adverse uh, employment thing. If they transfer you to Hawaii, uh, maybe not an adverse uh, employment uh, uh, action. Depends if you, I guess, if you like hot or cold weather and what the general attitude towards those two states are. But uh, in any case, you know, if, if you're transferred and you know, you have the same pay and everything like that. And there wasn't a clear causal connection between the thing. A little bit more difficult to prove. If they demote you, if they put you on leave status, even if it's a paid leave status, that is an adverse uh, or can be an adverse employment action, depending on what it does to you, to your career and, and things like that in the, in the company. The final thing you need to prove is sort of common sense. And that is a causal link between the protective activity that you engaged in and the adverse employment action. The two can't be unrelated. I can't have complained about sexual harassment five years ago and then today be fired and say, well, it must have been because of those five years, that, that complaint five years ago. So there is some time limitation, and we're going to see how that, uh, that came up in, in this particular case. So those are the core elements of a retaliation claim. And you can see why plaintiff's attorneys love it, because it can take a, a terrible claim and turn it into a great claim. And that's essentially what was going on in this case here. The person had a we're going to well, we're going to talk about what they had for their claim and see how on its face it's a great case. It makes plaintiff's attorneys drool. And then we're going to get into how it started to fall apart as the case went along and what ultimately made it into a losing case. 
but that's going to have to take place on the other side of the break because that's all the time that we have now. I will pick this up on the other side and we'll get back into retaliation. So stay tuned and I'll be right back. 